2 Kings chapter 14. You remember last week, we met a new king. We've been learning about lots of new kings, haven't we? But this was one of the kings who's the second. His name is Jeroboam the second. Does anybody remember anything about this guy from last time? Just one little thing. Elijah? He was prosperous. Very good. Anything else? Does anybody know why he was prosperous? Why was he prosperous? Nobody remembers? Okay, let me ask another question. Does anybody remember any of the prophets who lived at the same time as Jeroboam II? There's at least two. Jonah. Jonah is one. That's right. And who's the other one? Faith? Amos. Very good. So here we are in 2 Kings chapter 14, and it tells us, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned forty and one years. So again, if we look here at our timeline, we have the united monarchy, Saul, David, Solomon, and then we move on to the divided kingdom. Here you see Jeroboam the first. And right over here, you just see the little, 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 little bit of Jeroboam II on the end of the timeline at the top up here. You see that? Well, actually, that's not Jeroboam II. Who is that? Joash. Are you looking at a timeline? Good. He knew that from memory. Even I got messed it up. That's Joash. Let's move forward. There we go. Now, we should, I should have known that because I just now read it here. So we have the Joash that was down here, and we have the Joash that's up here, living at the same time, reigning at the same time. And here we have Jeroboam II. So if we go back and look, he doesn't quite fit on the same timeline as Jeroboam I, but here we can see him, Jeroboam II. And we see as history goes by, Israel ends 722 B.C. But here are these two prophets, Jonah... Somewhere in the reign of Jeroboam II and Amos. Now, we don't know exactly where Jonah falls, and we don't know exactly where Amos falls. So those dots are just kind of relative, okay? But here you can see it. Jeroboam II became king. And we read right in here. Let's just read it to review it here, because this is how we place Jonah, right in this place here. For here we have Jeroboam II, just now introduced him and how long he reigned. And it says, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first one who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath into the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was in gath Hefer, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, and it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. 
Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now we don't have that book, but we have another book that gives us some more history about Jeroboam the second. And so we need to turn to that book. It's, it's not Jonah. It's Amos. Now, before we dive into Amos, I want to talk a little bit about Jonah. Now, we're going to come back to Jonah and spend more time in the whole book learning about Jonah. But does anybody remember the city that Jonah was sent to? What was the name of the city that Jonah was sent to. I wonder, how many of you know? Okay, good, 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 good. Do you know what was the name of the city? Nineveh, you're right. Nineveh. Now I've got a harder question. Does anyone know what nation Nineveh was the capital of? Okay, good, good. Nathan. Assyria. That's right. Now, don't confuse this with Syria. There's a difference between Assyria and Syria. In the spectrum of history, Syria has been around for a long time and continues to be around for a long time and, in fact, is still around even today. But Assyria is a different, different nation. Let me show you a map here that might help you. You see this here? Now, Here's the Mediterranean Sea, just so you can be oriented. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. And normally we see a map that's, you know, right, cut off kind of like right in here. This is Israel. Now, Assyria is all those different colors. And you might wonder, well, why is Assyria so many different colors? Like when we think of the United States of America, we think of it as one shape as the United States of America, don't we? Well, did you know that if you actually looked at the United States of America from its beginning to where it's at now, did you know it's kind of changed shapes? It's gotten bigger. It's gotten bigger. Well, the same is true with Assyria. Assyria was a kingdom that was up here in the north. And um, so we have here Damascus, which was the capital of Syria, but Assyria's capital is Nineveh, which is up here in the purple. And you can see this little purple, purple shape right in the middle. That was kind of the original kingdom of Assyria. But Assyria didn't stay small. Assyria kept growing. And you know what? Assyria didn't keep growing because they were buying these surrounding lands from all of these different people. It's because Assyria was a nation of conquerors. And they went and they conquered the lands around them. And they expanded their kingdom to make it greater and greater and greater and greater. Israel was terrified of Assyria. Because not only were the Assyrians conquerors, they were cruel. They were mean. And I don't mean mean as in saying unkind things. And I don't even just mean mean as in killing people. 
they would torture people and do things cruelly to even children and mommies. They were terrible people. That's the reason why when God sent Jonah to Nineveh, what did Jonah do? Well, Jonah was here from Israel. And instead of going to Nineveh, what did he do? He went down to Tarshish, and he, where he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, which is way over here. He was going to get out of there. God told him to go to Nineveh, which is this direction, and instead he goes that direction. Remember, God got his attention. Why did Jonah not want to go to the Ninevites? Well, God sent him to Nineveh with a message. What was the message, if you think about it? Yet 40 days and 40 nights, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Now, you might think Jonah should be excited about bringing this message to Nineveh because he's coming to Nineveh to proclaim judgment. So Jonah, you would have thought, who was one of the Israelites who hated the Assyrians, would have been like, yes, I'm going to go tell them what they're going to get from God. They deserve it. But you know there was a part of that message Jonah didn't like. Yet 40 days and 40 nights, God was going to give them 40 days to repent. And that's the part Jonah didn't like because he knew that if God gave them the opportunity to repent, they might repent. And then God wouldn't destroy them. He just wanted God to destroy them and be done with them. So Jonah, he didn't want to go. To Nineveh. No, he just wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. Well, Jonah wasn't the only guy in Israel who hated the Ninevites, the Assyrians. He wasn't the only guy, by the way, who also hated all the other kingdoms around here. I mean, we could talk about Edom, and we could talk about Moab, and we could talk about Ammon, and we could talk about the Sidonians. We could talk about the Syrians. We could talk about all these other peoples who Israel and the people in Israel hated. And in some cases, for good reason. And I say for most cases, for good reason. So imagine with me that you live in Bethel or you live in Samaria. And this man shows up whom you've never met, a man named Amos. And we know a little bit about Amos. Amos from, was from a little, little country town, a little country town that was about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. It was a town that was known for shepherds living there. In fact, if you remember your map, you have Jerusalem, and oh, five or six miles south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. And if you go five or six miles south of that, you will find the hometown of Amos. Take your Bibles and turn with me over to Amos, where we find him introduced as a herdman of Tekoa. Tekoa is this town that is just 12 miles south of Jerusalem. Amos was a herdsman. That means that he took care of herds of cattle or sheep. We're not exactly sure which. In fact, it's fascinating because the Hebrew word here translated herdsman is actually a unique one. 
Normally, the word used for a shepherd or for one who takes care of cattle is a different word. And this is like a unique one, and we're not exactly sure what the significance, if any, there is to that unique word. It may mean that he was a shepherd of shepherds, meaning he was like the big boss, and he was the guy who managed all kinds of shepherds. Uh, It may mean, though, at the same time that... um, Uh, He was one of those peon shepherds, one of the lowly ones who got told what to do. But we also find out, as we look at things, that not only was he one who took care of herds, but he was a gatherer of fruit. So in the comparison of these two, many people have concluded, actually, that this guy was the the big boss. That he was a guy who not only oversaw the care of herds in the region of Tekoa, but he was also one who was a gatherer of figs. And um, these, these, these figs that he was a gatherer of tells us over in um, chapter 7 and verse 14 that they were more fruit. And that particular fruit doesn't grow in the Tekoa region. So it's very likely here now we're meeting Amos, a little bit of speculation. We know for a fact that he was a herdsman and we know for a fact that he was a gatherer of more fruit, figs. But it's possible that he was actually a very prosperous business owner managing the flocks in the region of Judah as well as a whole region of gathering of the sycamore fruit. He was a a farmer. And perhaps very profitable in it. Well, God called him to leave Tekoa to be a prophet and he's going to send him north, not to Jerusalem, further north to the nation of Israel. Now, Israel and Judah get along sometimes, and they don't get along at other times. And what kind of significance this was, I don't know. But as you start to think and read about some of what Amos prophesies, you, you might get this idea that, um, that, that this was a big job. And it, 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 it was. You know, we just sang songs this morning about being as bold as a lion. You know, Amos talks about a lion, and he talks about the roar of a lion. Amos is going to come to these kings in the north, and I'm going to tell you ahead of the story, pagan wicked priests in the north, And he has a message from God. And he says to the people, this message from God is like the roar of a lion. Will you listen? Will you be afraid when you hear a lion roar? Will you be afraid when you hear God roar? Well, let's turn on over to Amos. And see how he begins his prophecy. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, that's an interesting place in history, and we don't know exactly what that means. Well, we know what it means, but we don't know exactly where it falls into 
this timeline. When was the earthquake? We're not exactly sure. Josephus puts it in the time of Uzziah, actually quite further in this, in this region here. Um, that's where Josephus puts it, but we don't really know exactly for sure where it was. But archaeologists and others who have studied that region of Israel and that time period, you know, they can know things about history by digging down in the layers because in, in, as history went by, they would take it when cities would be conquered or cities would be destroyed. Um, instead of taking and pulling all that stuff out and then bringing it down to the base and building a new city, they would just bring more in and collapse it all, brush it all over flat, and then keep building up on top. And so they can know as they go down into these towels, these hills that are basically cities, that they can see as history, the, the story of history actually going deeper as they go deeper and deeper and deeper. It's really fascinating. But they have, they have discovered that in this time period, among cities that had been destroyed and rebuilt in this region, that there had been a major um, destruction caused what's very probable an earthquake. And it's throughout the whole region. It was massive. So like we talk about the earthquake that took place in Haiti and you see what happened there. We're talking about an earthquake that was almost twice as powerful as that. Now we don't know for sure, but there was a big earthquake and it was a major earthquake that took place. Now why did it come? Well, I wonder, this is a question I have, I have for, the, for the Lord, maybe for Amos, when it says here that this all took place two years before the earthquake, I want to know, is this a prophecy of an earthquake? Or is this just when the messages all got compiled of Amos in a book, this was given after the earthquake and just a reference of time? Don't know. If you read the book, it could be either way. This book could have, well, we know that the messages were verbally presented, what we read here today in Amos. They were verbally presented in the history two years before the earthquake. My question is, is where the, was the written record of these messages also done, and was this here, and is this here, a prophecy? If it is a prophecy, it would be a very profound prophecy. Because not only would this make a difference for the people who were hearing it, there's going to be an earthquake in two years, it would also be significant to people looking back that Amos' words were true. So here he is, somewhere in this Jeroboam, Uzziah, king of Judah, king of Israel, their reign. And look what it says in verse 2. And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. Oh, that doesn't sound very nice. God's going to speak. God's going to roar. And everybody from the far north of Israel, Mount Carmel, I shouldn't say far north, but the northern region, way down to the southern fields of the shepherds, they're going to be afraid. They're going to melt. They're going to mourn. They're going to wither. And then listen to what he says to these people. Now, again, back up with me in time. Imagine with me that you're there 
in, it's either Samaria or Bethel, or we're not sure where it's at. Later on, we know he's in Bethel. But this part may have actually taken place in Samaria. And you are the people of Israel. You're prosperous. You're wealthy. You have life of ease. And for the most part, you're wicked. And there's another thing about you all that's very common. You hate all the kingdoms around you. You hate the Syrians and Damascus. You hate Haziel. You remember him, right? You hate him. You hate Gaza, the Philistines. You hate the people of Tyrus. They're a cruel people. You really don't like the Edomites, and you don't like the people from Ammon, and you don't like the people from Moab. Definitely don't like the people from Assyria either because Assyria at this time is becoming bigger and powerful and scarier. And so Amos comes in, and you all hear him talk about the voice of the Lord and the Lord speaking and the Lord roaring. And then Amos, he starts in and he says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now, imagine with me, you're there in Israel, and you hear this proclamation. Your ears perk up. I like this prophet, Amos. I like Amos, yeah. Let the Lord roar from Zion against Damascus. We don't like Damascus. Let's see Damascus punished. Yeah. You're all excited about this message. Yes, yes. They've got three. They've got four. In fact, this pattern is mentioned here. And basically, as we look at this and we compare other scriptures, we learn that God has given Damascus a chance to repent for three and for four. But they haven't. And so he says they're going to be punished. Now imagine you're there in Israel and you hear this. Oh, if not on the outside, on the inside, you are so excited. Yes, yes, they're going to get punished. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have thrashed Gilead with thrashing instruments of iron. And you're all sitting saying, that's right, preach it, Amos. That's what they've done to us. They've cruelly thrashed us as with instruments of iron. God says, but I will send fire into the house of Haziel. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Haziel, burn them up. Which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad, his son. Oh, yes, this is great. I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the plain of Aden and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden and the people of Syria shall go into captivity into Kerr, saith the Lord. Oh, you all hear this news about Syria? Yes, we love you, Amos. Yes, let the Lord roar from Zion. Let's get rid of these Damascus people and some Haziel and Ben-Hadad and the Syrians. Yes! They're excited about this. This is great news. And then, verse 6, Amos continues on. 
Thus saith the Lord. Remember the one who roars from Zion. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire into the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof, and I will cut off the inhabitant of Ashdod and him that holdeth the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn mine hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord God. Oh, you can imagine, he's gone through and named the principal great cities of the Philistines. You know the Philistines. I mean, they've been a thorn in their flesh from the beginning. And now they're going to be punished. You can imagine the Israelites all hearing this. Hell, yes! Cheering Amos. They were excited about this, I'm sure. Gaza, the Philistines, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron. Oh, those are all the big cities of, of the Philistines. They shall perish, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, verse 9, for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. But I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. You notice here how this judgment is taking place of all these different regions. Syria, Damascus, the Philistines, Philistia, Gaza. Now the city-state of Tyrus. Oh, they're great. I mean, you see what's happening here? God's judging them, really, to put it bluntly, for war crimes. These nations have gone forth and have oppressed other nations. This is why Israel is like, the people of Israel would have heard this in that day. And to some of you, you think these, you don't even know who they are, what they are. You have no connection to them. But in Amos' day, even the smallest of children knew who these people were. It would be like me talking about the Taliban or ISIS but a little bit different. It would be like you living where ISIS and the Taliban were torturing people and hearing this about ISIS and the Taliban. Do you see the parallel? That's what it would have been like. These, these, were, these were nations that were fierce. And God is proclaiming, I am going to judge them. And these people, yay! They're so excited. Notice here, Tyre is going to get judged because of something they did to Edom and not respecting a brotherly covenant. They broke a treaty, apparently, and God's going to hold them accountable for it and bring judgment to them. There is a lot of history packed into these verses we don't have time to go into this morning. But if you have questions about it, i got some books that really explain the historical detail and even the fulfillment or some of the fulfillments, because not all of it's actually been fulfilled in the book of Amos, of what took place in all of this. But look now, look at 11. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Again, the people, you can imagine, 
We're cheering. So happy to hear this. God says, because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept wrath forever. And I will send fire upon Teman of Edom, which shall devour the places of Basra of Edom. Oh, yes, the people are excited about this. Edom, too, is going to be punished. They're going to get what they deserve. This Verse 13, Amos continues, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Wow, we're dealing with Syria and the Philistines and Tyre and the Edomites and the Moabites. They're all going to get what they deserve, finally. And now Ammon, because they... Oh, I don't even want to read what they did. <clears throat> because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they may enlarge their border. They wanted more land, Ammon. Ammon there, you remember, is on the other side of the Jordan River. And Gilead that is that region. And in their zeal and passion for land. They ripped up pregnant mothers. God says, this is unacceptable. I'm going to punish them. I will kindle a fire in the raw wall of Rabbah, the capital city, and it shall devour the palaces thereof with shouting in the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, saith the Lord. Imagine the Israelites hearing Amos talk about this. Perhaps they had known people that this had happened to. I shouldn't say perhaps. They did. And now they're hearing about them being punished. You can imagine. <laughs> yes! Preach it, Amos. Yes! Punish those wicked heathen people. Amos isn't done. Chapter 2, verse 1. Amos continues, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. But I will send fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Cheroth. And Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof. I will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. Again, cruelty from Moab. God says, I will judge. And he brings Amos as the one to proclaim this news to Israel. And you can imagine how excited the people were to hear again now of the pending punishment of Moab. Well, Amos has just now finished all their enemies. Well, Except Judah, but Judah doesn't necessarily count as, a, as, as an enemy. Uh, Judah's to the south, remember? But Amos isn't done. Thus saith the Lord, 
for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now, maybe, I'm speculating, the, the, the cheering died down a, a little bit, maybe. Judah, they're not, they're not so bad. They're, they're, they're our relatives. But we still don't like them, so there might have been still some, some cheering here about Judah. But I, I imagine that cheering got a little less as Amos continued. Because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. You can imagine with me the hearers that day. Amos has just now indicted the actual form of accusation and indictment and presentation of evidence is a formal legal, legal court system being presented here in these passages. They were used to this kind of accusation, evidence presented, and judgment proclaimed. It's happened to everyone around them. Everyone around them, even Judah. And when Amos finishes with Judah, he continues in chapter 2, verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. I don't think there was any cheering at this point. I don't think there was any more preach it, Amos. For now, he has indicted them. Because they sold the righteous for silver. You know what that means? That means that they abducted the righteous people, those who did righteous, and they sold them as slaves for silver. And the poor for a pair of shoes. Could you imagine being kidnapped and being sold as a slave so that the guy who kidnapped you could go buy himself a pair of fancy shoes? It doesn't even say fancy, it just says shoes. I thought shoes was a modern phenomenon. It's whole, the poor, for a pair of shoes. It may also mean that the poor man finally saved up enough money to buy a pair of shoes. <laughs> and 
and he was attacked and sold as a slave just so that the guy who sold him could steal his new shoes. To be blunt, just to let you know ahead of time, Amos has recorded some pretty horrific things for the kingdoms surrounding Israel. That have been hard to read. I really don't want to read what Amos goes into here. It's pretty bad. Verse 7, Israel, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And you don't even want to explain that. They lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. You know what that is? That's a poor man who doesn't have enough food for today. So he takes his clothes and he goes and he borrows money to buy food from a rich man and as a pledge, as a guarantee that he'll pay him back, he gives him his coat, his raiment. Well, there were laws about how this was to be done. There were laws about this. And they're ignoring the laws. Instead, they're, they're, they're taking these clothes laid up as a pledge. And they're bringing them into their very temples. And this isn't the altar of God. Oh, let me, let me. This is the altar of Jehovah, the Jehovah they invented, not the real one. In fact, it was more like the worship of the Canaanites or the worship of Baal. It's kind of what was referred to in the verse before. They drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. They, they basically here have, have, have stolen the wine of whoever, the rich, the poor, however they got it. They condemn them, and then they drink it in the house of their God. God says, through Amos, Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up your sons for prophets and your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not! And the Nazarites, the Nazarites were, in Numbers chapter 6, the people who voluntarily, for a period of time, did not shave or cut their hair and did not drink anything or touch anything with the fruit of the vine. It was a time, generally, normally, for a 
set period of time, sometimes just a month, 30 days. In some cases, lifelong. Samson was a lifelong. Samuel was a lifelong. And John the Baptist were all lifelong Nazarites from the, from the womb. But most of the time, it was a short set period of time. Well, these people would find these people who would, who would, who would swear this Nazarite vow to set themselves aside for a specific period of time to seek God. And they'd find out, oh, somebody wants to seek God. And somebody wants to read Numbers chapter 6. And somebody, somebody wants to follow God. Oh, no. We're going to just drag them into our places. And we're going to force them to drink the fruit of the vine. Nobody's worshiping God around here. And even if you try, we're going to force you to disobey. They told the prophets, don't you dare prophesy. Ah, you realize how hard that was for Amos to say. What's he doing? He's standing there prophesying to them. He's prophesying to them, and they've said, oh, no, 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 you prophesy not. It continues here in verse 13. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Therefore, the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force, neither shall the mighty deliver him, neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself, neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family, Judah and Israel, which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, Ye only have I known of all the families of the earth, Therefore will I punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will the lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Meaning, the Lord is roaring right now. And just like the lion in the forest doesn't roar when there's no prey, you're hearing the Lord roar. And you're his prey! Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? Obviously not. Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? There's no trap? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Would, would, you, would you take the trap away when there's nothing you've caught? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? He's basically answering this accusation where they say to the prophets, prophesy not. He says, how can I not but prophesy? The Lord has roared from Zion. I'm going to go forth and tell people. I'm going to bring the warning. How can I not? Later in the morning service, we're going to continue through Amos, and we're going to learn some more things about Amos in the history of Amos. 
But I hope this helps to set the stage. I hope now you can sit here and see the book of Amos and the picture of this all. What is being prophesied here this day by Amos? The judgment, 722 B.C. Within less than a hundred years, Israel will be carried away captive. And the things that we just read about, they won't escape. For a kingdom that wasn't even mentioned in these first chapters, Assyria, will come down, destroy Samaria, and carry the people away captive and scatter them. Those that survive. Amos is proclaiming to them, warning, warning, warning. And by the way, if it weren't for Amos, Israel wouldn't have survived Amos's life. Listen later this morning. We're going to read the whole book. You will hear Amos interceding, praying on behalf of Israel for mercy. Because in that very day of Amos, God had spoken of breaking forth and judgment upon these people. You see these descriptions of what they're doing. They're oppressing the poor, even though they live in such prosperity and wealth at this time. They're oppressing the poor. They're committing a Abominable, wicked sins. Their immorality is just unspeakable. I don't even like reading it. And all of this is taking place. But you see how he began? He's talking about Damascus, Syria, Gaza, the Philistines, Tyrus, Edom, Ammon. Moab. Do you see how the people could get excited about them getting punished? They deserve it. You know, they're not too excited about hearing about themselves. Do you know what that tells me? Let's sit up. Let's take note. It's easy for us to see others' wickedness, others' sin. What do we do about the sin in our own lives? Do we just gloss over it? I think there's a lesson for us in the way that God, through Amos, dealt with the nation of Israel and leading them to this point. It was easy for them to see the war crimes of their enemies around them. But at the very same time, it seemed that they couldn't see their own perverted wickedness. Let's take heed. Let's wake up. Let's examine ourselves before God. Amos is going to set for us some incredible teaching as we continue in this chapter, as we come to chapter 7. That's a principle and truths. Way back from Amos' day, 
that is still real today. So we'll do that here in a little while. But I ask you now, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of something in your life that you need to confess and forsake, this morning do just that. If you've received the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believed on him, you're saved. Why would you continue in sin? Confess it and forsake it, and may the relationship be restored. If we confess our sins, faithful and just as he, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God with a broken and contrite heart to know him that he can lift us up so that he can restore us. And so when we read of these great, wicked, wicked people, let's not get our own sinfulness and glory in the righteousness of Christ bestowed upon us, not to glory in sin, but as we glory in his righteousness, to let him live righteously through us. God has roared from Zion. Do we hear him? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving for us these sermons of Amos. May we learn from them. May we be admonished and taught. May we take heed lest we fall also. And may we run in hope and glory in your grace and in your righteousness. For you give us hope. We praise you now in Christ's name. Amen.